The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We're going to launch into a series of programs that gets into what I call the nuts and bolts of regulatory and compliance archaeology. Uh, for those of you who might be turned off by the fact that it's considered compliance archaeology and not necessarily archaeology that involves what would normally be considered very unique discoveries and discoveries that are largely tuned into uh, questions related to the human condition, I would just want to say to you that given the fact that 90% at least of the archaeology that's done in the United States in this day and age is uh, brought about by the necessity of performing archaeology and not necessarily because of the pure research component of that field. And what that's saying is that Please, not to be concerned that, that great discoveries will not be made. They will be made. But the context and the frame of reference from which these disco discoveries will be made are effectively cast upon us, if you will. We don't make the choices as much as we used to to excavate, for example, a project that we have a grand interest in. For example, let's look at a couple of the shows that we did do things like uh, human origins or in North America, questions of early peopling of the Americas and the presence of Clovis, the emergence of Folsom, the development of the archaic tradition and, and ultimately more recent past 2000 years discoveries of the woodland traditions that gave rise to, uh, to Native American uh, occupation and settlement patterns that we're familiar with today and ultimately into the historic period and as far as North America is concerned. These discoveries will still be made, but they will probably be increasingly made because somebody is developing a field or somebody is constructing a building or a roadway is being developed or a pipeline is going through a particular area or the government is developing uh, a, a new series of interchanges at, at uh, major uh, highways and interstates, interstates, 
railroads, et cetera, et cetera. We will, the archaeological database will be enriched to a grand degree. It will continue to be enriched to a grand degree, but it will be done in specific places as opposed to our having the ability to select the places in which we do this. Now, a lot of people are worried about this sort of thing, especially I've I've noticed this amongst folks who are avocationalists, people who are genuinely interested in history and prehistory and are wondering whether or not the quality of the recovery and the quality of the information that we're able to put together is going to maintain a high standard. Not to worry about that. I think that one of the key issues that we are dealing with in the professional community is the understanding that the funding for pure research is dwindling and uh, development is increasing exponentially. Uh, Whether or not you believe that's a good or a bad thing, it's the reality. And as a result of that, I thought it would be very important, if not absolutely necessary for folks who are interested in archaeology, especially here in North America, the United States in particular, to understand what's involved here. And it is an intricate process. It is a process that involves cooperation between a variety of different interests, including stakeholders, in other words, people who are affected by these construction projects which give rise to the archaeology, the regulators themselves, the folks who actually do the archaeology, which in many, most cases, the overwhelming majority of cases is uh, or, or continues to be private firms. Uh, in some cases, university-based firms, although that's that's dying down in frequency. And just generally to understand that this is a very, very complex process, much as uh, the regulatory environment in many other domains uh, is increasingly complex. However, in the past 30 or so years in which the dominance of compliance archaeology has increasingly overtaken the profession, uh, certainly in this part of the world, um, the infrastructure for doing this work and for passing it through regulatory uh, compliance has been polished. And the types of sort of exploratory, experimental efforts to do this kind of work has died. And at this point, I think I, I certainly am encouraged by the fact that we have professionals, very well-trained professionals, in positions of both undertaking the excavations, overlooking them, and actually assessing their significance in a very formal sense. So the future, I think, is very good for for compliance archaeology, but it is complicated to some degree because it's taken shape uh, through, to some degree, trial and error. So what I'd like to do today is outline some of the ways in which compliance archaeology is practiced. Now, uh, we have been doing a number of archaeological programs related to uh, other nations, and other nations are effectively going through the entire process that we're going through here in, in, in the United States. In the United States, compliance archaeology is generally considered uh, what's known as cultural resource management, which is a sophisticated way of saying that cultural heritage is part of a resource space, a resource space that through time uh, has to be discovered and dealt with. And uh, effectively, the resource, the cultural resource umbrella 
was utilized because archaeology and cultural resources is part really of the overall environmental package that most development projects have to go through in order to grant to be granted approval and to conform to the law in many other parts of the world uh, compliance archaeology is very much the same way although in most countries it's not called cultural resources it's called heritage management and heritage management refers to uh, grand monuments or even smaller monuments that are deemed to be very, very significant to the cultural identity of a particular nation. And as a result of that, preservation and excavation as necessary are under the umbrella of heritage management. Again, these are uh, similar words. uh, Cultural resources, heritage management are similar phrases to describe basically the same thing. Uh, The objectives of each is the same. Um, and, and the ultimate objective here really is either to excavate and completely document a resource that stands in the way of development or to alternatively to divert the, the, uh, the project, whatever construction is necessary for a project, um, so that it does not impact or adversely affect the integrity of the archaeological site or archaeological complex. And uh, in many cases, in the early days of cultural resource management, uh, there was a perception which has fortunately now disappeared, I think, almost completely, although some people still sort of hold on to uh, to these these old ideas. It was thought that, well, archaeology and cultural resources, preservation, heritage management can affect the schedule and the, uh, the ultimate construction of a particular project so that um, if there is a major, for example, Native American village that stands in the way of a proposed interstate, uh, that interstate's not going to get built. Well, that's never happened, and it won't happen. Um, what happens here is that there is hopefully a cooperative spirit between the developer and the uh, regulator and the archaeological interests of the greater community so that documentation of whatever site, in this case a village, would be um, presented by either by excavation or by preservation in place. Now, preservation in place would often cause a highway, for example, to be diverted around the village. That doesn't happen all that often unless it's cost-effective to do that. But in many cases, um, the excavation is done either through sampling or complete excavation. That doesn't happen as much anymore. But so that we get an idea of what the resource is, we get bits and pieces of the village recovered, to the degree that the archaeologists feel that, well, they know the general context of this village, they know what went on here, it's analogous to some villages in the same region that may have been excavated, or it's providing some new data. And these projects get normally very well documented. And again, this has been a a process of trial and error uh, in the formative years of cultural resources 
management, which basically takes in the period uh, in the modern era of, say, 1975 and going forward to approximately 1990, when there was uh, a, a still fair amount of sort of touching and feeling and trying to figure out what's important, what's not important, uh, to the point where now, uh, I won't say it's a road operation or exercise, but we certainly know uh, when we're coming on to something fairly significant. And when that's done, agreements are made, stakeholders are represented, regulators have their say because they ultimately um, pronounce uh, what needs to be done, what doesn't need to be done. And the archaeologists simply execute whatever plans are agreed upon by the interested parties, and they proceed to do this. And I won't say it's a completely smooth and unadulterated process. It, it, often comes up against some critical issues, but that's what makes everything fun and interesting. But I would say on balance, we've done a reasonably good job in doing this, and it's going to be more and more complicated to do this as development interests become greater and greater, and the strategies that we use and the strategies that underlie the uh, the uh, work that actually gets done become a bit more intricate and a bit more involved. And uh, as as we go forward, especially in what is now considered the age of sustainability, we have to be even more creative. And uh, by being creative, I think what will be happening in the next five or ten years is there will be an increasing application of high technological, high tech uh, strategies to deal with archaeological sites. There will certainly always be excavation going on, but it'll be more directed and you will have a much better idea of what a site is like and what can be expected based on things like remote sensing and sophisticated geographic information systems to provide sort of baseline information that allows one to excavate or retrieve archaeological information in the most efficient way possible. So uh, on that note, I think we're going to take a little break here, and then I will proceed to discuss a little bit about the regulatory environment, which I think all of us need to know um, as, as, again, as the profile of compliance archaeology gets even larger than it is today. So we'll be back after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to a new view of life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life, which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A new view of life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program. Our topic for the day is compliance archaeology, the ins and outs or the nuts and bolts of, of how compliance archaeology is done from the North American perspective, which does not necessarily diverge significantly from the international perspective, certainly in terms of procedure, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. But I do want to remind you that you can follow our program and you can follow discussions about the program, and they can be fairly lively, which is nice, and we would encourage you to do that by going on our Facebook page, and the address for the Facebook page is www.facebook.com forward slash Indiana Jones Myth Reality, one word. And also our Twitter account, which is www.twitter.com forward slash Indy Jones Myth, again, one word. So if you can uh, or are at all motivated or interested in continuing on following up on various elements of the discussions, by all means, please please contact us. We do have a fairly lively exchange. There are people who get in and out of, of uh, discussion on a variety of different topics that uh, we've been bringing up. And uh, since social networking is the wave of the, of the present and clearly the future, uh, I would encourage all of you to uh, jot your thoughts down and, and promote exchange because that's how we get some feedback on, on what you're interested in talking about. We certainly are drawing some interesting and innovative ideas from the listenership as well. We want to continue to do so. Now, getting back to the topic of the regulatory environment, um, I think what people do need to understand, and again, uh, in, in previous programs we have done elements of the law and archaeology, and we've discussed certainly how private companies do undertake the practice of archaeology, but I think one of the real interesting and, and, and more uh, substantive and instructional elements of this study in, in the compliance archaeology world is to understand how the process works. The process works in a relatively straightforward fashion. And again, um, the most important element to realize here is that the archaeology is done because a property 
is going to be impacted. There will be an, an agency that will take responsibility for the undertaking. And if it's a federal project that's going to be done, for example, a pipeline that goes across states or an interstate highway or housing development even or national uh, construction on a national park property or, or the Forest Service or any project that actually cuts across state lines and has a federal jurisdiction component, there is an agency that will be entrusted or assigned the job of overseeing the archaeology. So that, for example, the Army Corps of Engineers, which by and large looks at bodies of water that are impacted by construction projects, uh, take for example here where we live, in New York City, um, developments of shipping channels along the port of New York um, that are going to be uh, silted over because of excessive usage and might have an impact on buried shipwrecks or prehistoric surfaces that are related uh, to burial because of sea level rise, the Corps of Engineers will assume responsibility for any cultural resource work that's related to cleaning up those channels, to modifying and restructuring the structures in the vicinity of the harbor, and they will help design a program, and they will issue a what's called the request for proposal for companies or related in, uh and um, enterprises to perform the work, and the work can consist of a variety of different types of elements, for example, actual underwater archaeology, reconstructing the environments that are underneath the water and that have been covered over by, uh, by say, sands that have buried what were formerly intact surfaces at which will now be disturbed, and a variety of different other impacts. Uh, certainly structures that have fallen over or structures that have been buried or destroyed because of, in this particular case, in the most recent past, because of Hurricane Sandy, there will certainly be a lot of archaeological work related to the damage caused by Hurricane Sandy in advance of uh, cleaning up the shoreline, in advance of uh, reconstructing houses, reconstructing fortifications and erosional facilities, erosional retention facilities. That kind of work will go through an archaeological survey and a process. And when those RFPs or requests for proposals are issued, a variety of interests and companies will bid on them, and they will, just as in any other construction venue, they will present a scope of work, they will present a budget, and the appropriate balance between the um, scope the capabilities of the individuals and the teams and the companies doing the work and of course the finances are all considered and a decision is made by the regulatory agency in this case the Corps of Engineers as to who will be awarded the contract and these contracts are very very focused in most cases or they can be actually in, if, if, if there's a far-sighted plan for example a 10 or 20 or 30 even 30 year um, preservation plan those are those contracts turn out to be design documents and again they look forward to understanding what the potential impacts are of subsequent destruction 
on the shoreline and they anticipate this to a very large degree and the contract is released. Now, in terms of what the sequence of procedures is, um, in, in most of the country, in, in most every state or every, every area, area's ju- jurisdiction, there is what's known as a phase one, phase two, and phase three process. And the phase one process is the process by which it is determined whether or not there is archaeological sensitivity for a particular tract of land that is going to be affected by a construction or uh, development project. And in other words, that sort of lays out the foundation. Uh, you're not going to go out and willy-nilly dig in an area that uh, does not have any previous known or at least suspected potential for having archaeological resources, be they historic, meaning post-Columbian, or prehistoric, which means pre-Columbian, pre gen- generically pre-1492, related to the prehistory of the continent. Those uh, initial searches are done through literature um, research, through records and archiving probing, of those uh, written documents in, say, in the eastern United States, one would look at, for example, the early Dutch and the early British colonial records. In the western United States, the uh, Spanish records. And uh, in the central United States, the, uh, as, just for sort of very generically, the French and the Spanish records as well. And so you have a baseline for going forward and for understanding uh, whether or not there is a reasonable chance that there will be an archaeological resource. Now, uh, if your documentary research shows you that there is uh, a reasonable chance of having an archaeological resources, or in, in the case of historic structures, if there is written history that says in this particular space, in this particular plot, let's say William Penn, uh, um, signed a major governmental agreement for the uh, for the uh, jurisdiction and uh, control of the governmental activities of the state of Pennsylvania, then uh, you would have a reason to actually go ahead and undertake the archaeological work. Then, once that is done, and this is a relatively comprehensive report that just sort of lays the foundation for doing whatever you're going to do archaeologically, what happens then is... Um, there is actual archaeological exploration, and that would consist of what's called a Phase 1 survey. Now, again, I said Phase 1 was related to um, literature searching and sort of setting out the preliminary baseline for what could be archaeologically. And in some cases, in some states, there is a Phase 1A and a 1B. The 1A would actually be the literature search and the documentation, and the Phase 1B uh, would consist of the actual archaeological testing. Now, in most states, that's rolled into one. It's a phase one. Uh, in New York State, for example, where we do a fair amount of work, there would be a phase 1A, which is literature search, and phase 1B, which is the actual testing. Once the testing occurs, and the testing takes a variety of different forms, uh, it can be tested through, at this point in time, as we get increasingly more sophisticated, utilizing high-tech uh, strategies, remote sensing, LIDAR mapping, a variety of different strategies like this, which are increasingly becoming important. Uh, but more traditionally, they involve literally uh, systematic testing with shovels 
in the eastern United States going underneath the surface, depending on what we know about the surface, and recording information that may be of archaeological interest. In the West, this is not as prominent because the West has a lot of dry environments, and in general, it is assumed, and for good reason, that a lot of the archaeological materials are going to be on the surface themselves. So depending on the concentrations of particular archaeological elements, uh, for example, in, in Arizona, if you're looking at uh, Hohokam structures or even earlier prehistoric Native American uh, aboriginal areas, you would see a distribution of chipping degree, debris associated with uh, point manufacturing or early, early, early arrow manufacturing and that kind of degree, that kind of debris would give you an indication of a prehistoric activity area and you would flag it and then you would indicate that that would be an archaeologically potential situation. And, um, once that is established and it's established to the satisfaction of the regulatory agency, um, then what will happen here is that finding will either be, be deemed to be relatively important or not so important because if you have about a thousand of these distributions in the same area, then it's very probable that the thousandth and one is not going to contribute very much to the knowledge base and you can overlook it and the development can proceed. After that, we get into a phase two element of research and I will talk about that after these words and we will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McClune will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with our discussion on compliance archaeology, and again, I would like to remind the listenership that you can join in on the conversations, discussions, and most specifically to the follow-up of the various topics that we deal with by going to our Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com forward slash Indiana Jones Myth Reality, one word, and or our Twitter account which is www.twitter.com forward slash Indy Jones Myth again one word um, we've been discussing the protocol for undertaking archaeology in North America and again it's very analogous to the procedures that occur in, in many many other parts of the world it's a systematic sort of progressive if you will development of, of archaeological investigation that effectively goes from the stage of finding out if there is something of archaeological potential to whether there is something of archaeological potential and is major how we go about doing doing the work and dealing with the compliance to the law and to the satisfaction of the stakeholders or the people that are affected by the development and the populations that are also affected by the development and to the resource itself, which is the archaeological database, uh, which, of course, is uh, certainly to some degree compromised by these activities. But nevertheless, we can procure a tremendous amount of information if we follow these protocols. So we had discussed the phase one element of the entire uh, sequence of events, the phase one is if you're looking at a flow chart, do we have archaeology, do we not have archaeology? If uh, the phase one demonstrates that, you ha- yeah, you don't have any archaeology, then you move on, and then you effectively get clearance for development. The other alternative is, yes, we have archaeology, but it's nothing that we haven't seen before. It's not especially unique. It's one of several thousand types of elements or types of types of archaeological materials and distributions that are common in the area. Well, that's just documented at the earliest level of significance or, or, or uh, manifestation, shall we say, uh, on the ground, and it's generally reviewed and the regulator will say, well, we've seen this so much before and we know what it looks like. Uh, again, you'll get clearance. Or uh, the third scenario is that the phase one is showing you something relatively new, relatively interesting, something that may be possibly uh, not that unusual, but maybe unusual for that particular place in that particular time. And then you go into what's known as a phase two level of investigation. The phase two level of investigation is essentially a testing phase. In other words, we find an archaeological uh, manifestation. Let's not call it a site yet because we don't know 
what the integrity is of the location, whether or not it's just a series of artifacts that have been mobilized and moved from their original positions, or whether they're artifacts and structures and components that are effectively in the same area that they were left in by the people who are responsible for their distribution and if that is the case then they retain integrity and if they do retain integrity then the next phase is to test them and again to explore whether or not they are unique and if you have established some integrity you follow it out you tease it out and again uh, as I said Earlier, we are using increasingly high-technology techniques, uh, as I said, remote sensing, ground-penetrating radar, a variety of different types of techniques to get at this information, and that becomes increasingly more important to high-tech stuff once you get into more complicated archaeological scenarios. But let's leave that for a moment. Then the next, this phase two, will actually tease out the, the depth and the lateral extent, if you will, of the archaeological distribution. You will map it. You will do a fair, uh, limited amount of analysis on what you have. And at that point, the discovery itself will be uh, summarized in a report, presented to the regulator and to the stakeholders, the people who also have input, local people, regional people who have input into the scenario, um, people who are affected, for example, by the construction of whatever the project is. And they will assess whether or not you have satisfied uh, what you really need to do at that level of investigation. In other words, if you've established what I, what I called earlier integrity and it's a small manifestation, you've tested it, you know what it is because you have a baseline for what these types of finds are, then that's the end of it. You have tested it, you have found basically what it is, you've demonstrated that it conforms to a series of finds that are common for that particular place and time and period. And you take you take that information out of the ground. Uh, there is still some left, um, but the it's, it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis. Are we going to gain a lot of information if we take more of it out, or is it simply going to be the same old story of things that we've seen before? Uh, and that could be, for example, a prehistoric fireplace uh, that we recover, and you basically get most of what you're going to get out of it: burned seeds, uh, some some debitage or some uh, by, byproduct of prehistoric tool manufacture, which typically occurred on, on chert, or something along those lines, a butchering station. Again, these things can be three, four, five thousand years old, but we've seen them before and we have the information. It's been recovered, at least in a sampled situation. And then you move along and you give, again, clearance to the developer to go ahead and do the work. And then, uh, that, that, that a, for, a, fair number of archaeological manifestations at this point they can actually be extended from being identified as a manifestation to a site those sites have been seen before we've documented them they're uh, they've provided at least 80 percent of the type of knowledge that they can potentially produce and it's deemed that the other 20 percent is probably not going to re design our interpretations or adversely impact the uh, the nature of what we think is going on in the location and then that too gets cleared so that's the end of the process there on the other hand 
if the phase two provides us with some provocative information that we're not very familiar with, uh, for example, a structure or a privy in, in, in the case of historic North America that, that, uh, is unique and has debris and artifact assemblages and say, for example, uh, 18th century bottles that are very unusual in this particular place or, or location. Well, then we would go into what's called a, an, a phase three level of investigation. Now, a phase three level of investigation is either going to be a detailed archaeological investigation or a sampled situation in which uh, various components or the, the, you know, the depth and, and the extent of that archaeological manifestation is going to be explored in pretty great depth. And the reason we do that is because there is something in that assemblage or there is something at this site that is fairly unique. And the construction project is going to affect its uh, preservation potential. It's going to affect the knowledge base. Um, there is something here that uh, would be considered important or archaeologically significant, and the, uh, in a legal sense, it will be eligible for consideration on the National Register of Historic Places, which is a very formal designation for an archaeological site that is considered, in a very formal sense, significant because it imparts information that we don't yet have or provides uh, something of very historic significance, for example, let's say uh, Benjamin Franklin's house or um, a Native American village in a location or a Native American cemetery or a historic cemetery. Those are the types of situations which would be most analogous to what everybody in the greater world says a major archaeological dig and that's what would happen uh, you could look at the phase three element or the phase three level of investigation in a very traditional sense would be considered a archaeological dig except except if the developer makes a cost undertakes a cost element analysis and says you know what this thing is going to cost us a fair amount of money to do uh, we've already done some documentation in the phase two level of work. Um, we know what's, what's there. There's more information to be had. But the fact of the matter is that that archaeological location, that archaeological site, and it is a site at this point, is not going to be affected by the construction if the developer or the uh, highway designers decide that, you know what, we're going to go around this thing and we're not going to remove it. We're going to keep it in place. It's called preservation in place. We're not going to adversely impact it. For example, one of the things you could do is to put a parking lot over it. You're not disturbing the integrity of the site and um, you don't really have to do much and you can keep it intact. And now people will argue and say, well, that's a major archaeological resource. But as far as the developer is concerned, it's not really their responsibility to do it. Because if they have made the accommodation to alter the configuration of whatever it is they're designing, be it a roadway, a pipeline, uh, some kind of a structure, if they move that structure, they've complied with the law. And they have gone as far as they absolutely need to go in terms of uh, satisfying the regulatory uh, constraints of the situation. And a lot of people get disturbed by these things. But keep in mind, doing an archaeological excavation on a phase three level is not a cheap undertaking. It can be very difficult and it can be costly. 
And so as a result of that, there is a sort of uh, an escape clause, if you will. And that means, you know, well, uh, we've decided that we're going to move this pipeline, say, 15 feet to the south or the north. Uh, and if you do that situation, then, then what you have to do is you have to go through the same process. If you're moving at 15 meet, feet to the north or the south, you have to go through the phase one, phase two, and phase three process as well. Now, if it's a major site, um, then there's a very good chance that if you move the pipeline or the highway 15, meet, 15 feet to the south, you could still be on the site. I mean, it could be a village, and if it's a village, 15 feet is not necessarily going to get you off it. And then you have a major decision to make, and you may have to actually go ahead and undertake a fuller excavation. So the, the system works quite nicely in that sense, and, and uh, when we get back, I'll discuss a little bit about uh, the phase three process and then we'll talk about the regulatory agencies that oversee this work in various parts of the country and we'll also get into a little, little bit into heritage management in other parts of the world and we will do that after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenring. We're back and we are presenting a program on archaeology and the regulatory environment. We have talked about this in previous shows in bits and pieces. We've talked about private 
enterprise and archaeology and how uh, private companies in the past 20 years have certainly grown and undertake these uh, archaeological uh, excavations and investigations as a part of, of, of a more intensive regulatory process that has grown uh, since the emergence of the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966 with modifications through the years. And one of the elements that we had not discussed to this point is how that regulatory context fits together. And I've gone through the details of what the Phase 1, Phase 2, and Phase 3 processes are. And... Um, Basically, phase one, again, to summarize this, and you'll have to go back to the earlier parts of the program to put all this together, but in summary, the phase one process of assessment of an archaeologically potential property is the documentation that there is, in fact, something there. And then you would move to phase two, which is uh, one step more sophisticated, one step more significant, which is essentially telling you, yeah, there's something there that is potentially significant because it's it has integrity. In other words, not just a bunch of loose artifacts, 19th century bottles or something like that, that have been moved from their original location, but the location retains some integrity and is, is, is significant. And uh, finally, the phase three level of investigation, which is what most people out in the greater public would say, okay, that's an archaeological dig in the most formal sense of the word. So if you're digging up a Middle Eastern tell or an Indus Valley mound, or if you're looking at uh, an early hominid archaeological site, that would be a total excavation. Um, and that's where you actually document uh, rather large um, distributions of archaeological materials that were largely intact and left intact by the people who actually produced them. So we're talking about the Phase 3, and the Phase 3, of course, is an intricate process, and as often is the case, um, they are discovered towards the tail end of the process, and very often, very often, and, and this continues to this day, uh, as far as the developer is concerned, when you reach this phase three spot, that's where they have to make a very critical decision because they have to decide whether or not it's cost effective for them to actually excavate the site remove it or whether they want to preserve it in place and effectively move their project to conform to the fact that there's an archaeological site there and they have to bypass it or take it out. And those decisions are left to the developer. I mean, while archaeologists would certainly be more than happy to do the excavation for a variety of reasons, including increasing the knowledge base and uh, also that uh, large projects uh, are good for the pocketbook, um, they will have to comply to the developer's concern. And if the developer makes the, the decision that it's most cost-effective to reroute, uh, to build a highway in a different spot, to move the interchange uh, several, several feet or hundreds of feet, either way, north, south, east, west, they will do that, and they can do that. And uh, again, um, in many cases... Um, archaeologists sort of have been used by by environmentalists as being sort of the last line of defense against a development, and and that's a misconception because uh, we have been in certainly in certain situations where uh, there was sort of an implicit assumption by people who are protesting a development interest. Well, if there's an archaeological site there. Uh, the, the building can't be built or the power plant can't be constructed or the highway can't go through. That's not true. The highway will go through. 
the plant will be built if the developer takes the appropriate action. Now, one of the key issues here is that up until relatively recently, uh, developers and uh Folks who have vested interests in construction, I mean, highway, highway engineers, designers, the federal government, um, they will say, well, this is a very important project. So, uh, we really have to get this through. But, uh, in many cases, um, especially in the cases of private developers, they sort of think that the archaeology will somehow go away if it's postponed and if it's pushed off and if, uh, they turn the other, they turn the other, a blind eye to it and, uh, they just kind of figure, well, you know what? It's just, you know, it's just artifacts. It's just, uh, just another annoyance. We'll dig up a couple and that'll be that. And that very often results in a confrontation and a situation that might not necessarily be productive for either end. If archaeology is pushed off as the last element of the regulatory process, it can seriously impact the timing and development of construction. And that's an issue. And um, it has been very bad in some points in the past. And um, I think we have finally, in this generation, certainly of, of professionals, engineering professionals and highway designers and uh, even uh, contractors and construction and development managers, they finally understand, I think, I mean, it's not completely gone. They understand they have to deal with this up front because the last thing they want to go do is get a regulator up against them and the regulator will say you know what you have pushed this under the rug you've swept this under the rug for long enough you have to do this and we have been engaged in a number of processes like that a number of projects like that where uh, the situation has in fact been uh, kind of dreary and uh, there's there is a testy environment uh, when the archaeology is done and it's 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 not comfortable either for the archaeologist for the regulator and ultimately the people who pay the price are the developing the development interests i mean um this can be an issue uh again these issues and situations are getting uh less and less frequent less pervasive again because there is i think in this country and in many other places an increasing an increased environmental awareness that regulatory environments are ultimately the situation that will benefit the great, the population in general and uh it be all of us to plan in advance so that uh, there are no unnecessary delays, so that we are not blamed for having halted the pathway to progress, and everybody's concerns are taken care of, not the least of which is the resource itself. And um, I, think, I think we're at a point right now where uh, the awareness is certainly there. There is uh, a tacit agreement amongst all the parties, the stakeholders, the regulators, the archaeologists, that the resource is important, has to be dealt with, and plan ahead rather than later. Because if you plan, if you, you push it off to the last minute, there will be delays and there will be tension. And your permits will not go through because archaeology is part of the compliance process is and will be in the future and if you don't pay attention to it now you will pay later uh, out of your own pocketbook and in some cases not very many cases certainly but in some cases it can it, it can actually cause a project to really sort of get off the track and uh, a variety of different uh, complicated scenarios can emerge that could have been avoided all along 
by actually um, doing the necessary planning in advance and moving this all along. And um, I was going to get into a discussion of who the regulatory agencies are, where, what their responsibilities are, how the country is divided up by them. I didn't talk about that. I didn't talk about uh, state regulations, municipal regulations, which work in hand-in-hand hand with federal reg regulations depending on jurisdictions. But we will do another program on compliance archaeology, again, because it is now the overwhelming means for archaeological exploration to be undertaken in this country and for that matter, everywhere in the world. So until next time, when we give you another episode, uh, stay well. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again. And this is Joe Schuldenrang saying good evening. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrang. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.